Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to a very special edition of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is going to be episode 173 of the Dangerous History Podcast, DHP Heroes, John Taylor Ghetto. On October 25th, 2018, John Taylor Gatto passed away at age 82. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, he was for three decades an award-winning public school teacher in New York City, who then became an outspoken critic and activist against schooling in general and compulsory public schooling in particular in the United States, wrote such books as Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, and The Underground History of American Education, a school teacher's intimate investigation into the problem of modern schooling. And the latter book in particular was a big influence on me. I read it around 2008 or perhaps early 2009, give or take. I think it was 2008. And around the same time as I read a number of other influential things, some of which I mentioned in this episode, and also began to discover things like the Austrian School of Economics, Murray Rothbard, various other uh, influences that eventually nudged me over the space of, I don't know, maybe a year or two, from being some kind of vague, fuzzy conservatarian to being an outright anarchist. And I have no idea, honestly, if uh, John Taylor Gatto himself really ever considered himself an anarchist. But regardless, his thoughts, his experience, his research had that effect on me. And not long after I found out that he had passed away, and he had been in bad health for a while. He had had, I think, multiple strokes and that sort of thing. And um, not long after I found out that he had passed away, I was inspired to try and put together a DHP Heroes feature on him. And I reached out to two other independent media producers, both of whom I knew had been heavily influenced by John Taylor Gatto. And those are my guests, my collaborators for this episode, Richard Grove of Tragedy and Hope and Brett Vinat of School Sucks. Now, Brett, you may recall I've actually met in person at the last Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, and he was even kind enough to interview me in person while we were there. And so we did a, a joint crossover episode 
based on that conversation. Richard, I've had some interactions with online before, but had never actually spoken to. And I knew that Brett was very influenced and inspired by Gatto's work to eventually begin the School Sucks Project. And I knew that Richard over at Tragedy and Hope was also not only influenced by Gatto, but had come to know him personally. And I and I knew that he had done a long uh, video interview with Gatto a number of years ago because I I had watched it soon after it was produced. So I reached out to the two of them and basically proposed, hey, how about we have um, a three-way conversation about this very important man and his important contributions to the ideas of liberty and to understanding some of the threats to liberty some of which are often not properly seen for what they are in the form of things like schooling. And thankfully, we were able to eventually work out a mutually agreeable uh, time to have this discussion. And so that's going to be this episode. And I just want to say right here, thanks very much to Rich and to Brett for joining me on this. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting conversation about a very, very important individual who certainly deserves the title of DHP heroes to join that pantheon of champions alongside such excellent individuals as Carl Hess, Lysander Spooner, Smedley Butler, and so forth. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Richard Grove and Brett Vinat about the late, great John Taylor Gatto. I'm really happy uh, for this uh, special edition of the Dangerous History Podcast, even though it's on a somewhat uh, sad and somber occasion that triggered this. But I'm really happy to have Richard Grove from Tragedy and Hope and Brett Vinat of School Sucks joining me to discuss kind of the, the life and legacy and influence of the great and recently late John Taylor Gatto. So, uh, guys, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for the invite, CJ. Thanks, CJ. Well, what I would like to start off the discussion with is how you discovered Gatto and his work, because it's not exactly like it's plastered all over the mainstream. You know, it's not something that you you stumble into if you're just sort of going through the standard motions of um, you know education and schooling and whatever, so I'll just I'll just share my kind of how I discovered Gatto. For me, um, I heard Gatto referenced probably in the early two thousands on uh, a radio talk show of a guy named Neil Bortz. I don't know if either of you have either of you ever heard of Neil Bortz. No. Yes. Yeah, he's he's more big in the South. Uh, he was based out of Atlanta. Uh, I think he's been retired for a while. I haven't listened to him in a long time, but he was probably one of the biggest kind of before the era of podcasting, maybe one of the biggest libertarian voices in the American media. And, you know, not quite as big as like Limbaugh or Hannity, but not, you know, still pretty big. And um, he mentioned Gatto once or twice. And it just kind of was one of those things where I I didn't go look it up right away, but I was like, huh, that sounds interesting. Do you Um, remember the context that he mentioned it? Um, in the context of criticizing public education, yeah, right. Was it anything specific? 
I can't remember other than, you know, it was possibly like just sort of a rant about all the defects of public schooling. And, and I remember he did specifically mention the book, The Underground History of American Education. So that that was the book that I kind of in my brain had attached uh, to Ghetto. Now, um, Neil Bortz, by the way, once the war on terror got really rolling, he became like hardcore warmonger. So, you know, his his libertarianism might be in question at that point. But kind of before that, he was he was pretty solid. But it wasn't until around 2008 or so that I actually started reading Underground History of American Education. And I started reading it originally off of Gatto's website because he had a bunch of the chapters posted there. Um, and then I eventually like dug up a hard copy on Amazon, which wasn't super easy to come by back then. And what's interesting is I read that book, Underground History of American Education, more or less simultaneously with two other books that between the three of them, it like totally kind of blew my paradigm. Um, the other two, one, one was Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, uh, and the other was Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. So I had like the one, two, three punch of those three books around 2008. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm like really freaking radical now at this point. But I'm curious, I, I guess I'll, I'll throw it uh, to Richard first and then to Brett. How, how did you discover Gatto? What's your, your Gatto discovery story? Well, I had encountered some obstacles in my professional life that weren't mapped out by my schooling. And so I was trying to learn about who are the non-elected rulers of this place? What is known? Who has tried to study this? Who has figured this out? Surely I am not, pers- not the first person to bump up against such you know, endeavors that are go on in the world that are kind of off the map. Oh, look at that. I forgot to put my phone on mute and somebody calls. How classic is that? Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll put mine on mute too. I just realized. That's my reminder to both of you to be polite during a podcast. I already muted myself. I just unmuted myself to tell you guys that. <laughs> so I'm out there looking for these answers. Who are these non-elected rulers? There's definitely a ruling class above the political class, you know, above the civics and political science education that were provided, there's definitely a power structure there. Who has witnessed it? Who has written about it? So I'm looking for all these answers. So this is around 2003, 2004. I'm a voracious reader. I have questions I cannot answer with the, the, the traditional tools that I had been provided for education. And I'm out there and I'm, I'm getting all these books. So G. Edward Griffin, the Russ Baker book, I read those as well, the, not the Griffin book as soon as it came out, but the Russ Baker book, I, I was waiting for that book to come out. So I'm reading all these books. I'm trying to put together this composite, understand the picture, what's going on here. And some website had pointed me, some article had pointed me toward the underground history of American education. So I ordered that book. And I remember getting that book because it's an odd shaped book. It's a really big book. It's not just like a thick book. It's like a it's like bigger than a sheet of paper book. It's like a, it's a lap book. It's almost like a coffee table book. Well, you know what it looks like to me? It looks like a college textbook in terms of just the dimensions. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things that don't fit in your backpack so well. So I got this book and then it's, it's written in a, like a non-traditional kind of format. And the way he writes is very different than the you know, academic textbooks. So he's telling you a different story in a different way, in a different format. And I have to be honest, it kind of bounced off of me. I didn't get what he was saying because I was so indoctrinated by the system and so limited in how I had, you know, been taught how to think. So I've got this book on my shelf 
And then I keep reading. I must have read another 500 books in between my two readings of that book. And then at one point, I get to the scientific dictatorship and how it's adversely affecting education. I said, oh, I had that other book. I remember this guy talking about that. So I went back and I read Underground History of American Education. I was like, geez, this guy... He, not only he he had it, he had it, he wrote it down and it's, it's like so coherent that it bounced off me the first time because I didn't, I didn't understand the relationship of how us being dumbed down had empowered this non-elected ruling structure. So for me, the convection current was I bumped in, into some things. I'm looking for this non-elected ruling structure. Then I had to learn how we were dumbed down and how they use scientific management to do that. And then that brought me full circle to, oh, he pointed out the problem. He mapped it out. Here's the history. Now, what do we have to do? We have to put those pieces that they took out of education to break it and make it into schooling. We have to put those pieces back. And then during that journey, I meet people like Brett, who's like, hey, you got the message too? Yeah, this is going on out there. What can we do about it? And it's like, you know, one of the things we can do is let other people know. Not so much that it's my work or Brett's work. You know, we're just really reflecting. Like there were people who came before us that did serious amounts of academic quality work on these topics. And they're, they don't have marketing budgets. You're not being told about them on the media. You're not being told about them. They're not being advertised to you in your status quo culture. So I took it upon myself and Brett has taken it upon himself and you're taking it upon yourself, CJ, through what you do every day to make sure that these these nuggets of knowledge don't get covered up again and forgotten because they were very hard to mine and they are very, very relevant to what's going on today in American culture. So that's kind of how I came across John's first book. And then by the time I was kind of getting the hang of it, he came out with weapons of mass instruction. And then I saw like, he's got, he's got all these puzzle pieces and he's already put them together. Why try to recreate the wheel? Like he did an impeccable job. He's got like three Ivy League degrees. He knew what he was doing and he understood how the system was broken. So at some point I was like, I, you know, I had listened to all his audio. I'd watched all his video on YouTube. And what occurred to me was I always wanted to see him more clearly and hear him more clearly. And so I took it upon myself to put him in front of some cameras and some good microphones and get together with some friends and none of us really knew what we were doing. Like I hadn't really interviewed somebody of his magnitude before, but I had a 50 page outline of all his work, A to Z, you know, and we didn't really know how to use the cameras and lights and stuff properly. But, you know, six months of editing, it carries the message, you know, like Brett says in, the, in his memoriam, it breathes life, you know, it brings it to life. So I'm glad to have um, got to know him through his books and got to meet him and then got to be friends with him for many years afterwards. He's a real character. Yeah, I guess you're the only one of the three of us who's actually met him in person, right? I mean, I definitely haven't. Brett, did you ever meet uh, John in person? I did not, no. Okay. Yeah, and by the way, that's uh, the ultimate history lesson for anyone uh, who's not familiar with it. Definitely worth checking out. Um, I watched the whole six hours or something back probably pretty close to when it first came out and then was just rewatching a bunch of it recently preparing for this conversation. Um, but I'll, I'll definitely throw a link to it in my show notes for anyone who's interested, but yeah, it's, it's a uh, good fun. So, uh, Brett, what's your John Taylor ghetto origin story? Sure. I was actually revisiting some of Rich's documentary, Rich's interview with John, uh, in the past week as well. 
it's funny. There's a couple of times where there's slating where it's called a day with John Taylor Gatto, and then maybe it just expanded beyond a day. I don't know what the original <laughs> plan was. Were you trying to Were you trying to pack that all into one day originally, Rich? <laughs> when well, no, the whole plan was a weekend. It was going to be the yeah. weekend. He came up on a Friday, and he was going to go back on a Sunday. And when we took him to the hotel Friday night, I gave him the outline. I was like, "Oh, by the way, uh, so this is what I was thinking we could talk about." And so he gets there the next morning. He goes, Richard, if we had a whole week, we couldn't talk about all this. Right. And that's when I kind of just put the the outline aside and I winged it. I winged yeah. it. Because by then, if I have a 50-page outline, I know his work. So I can put that aside. And he gave me the confidence to do that. And I think that's what was magical about the whole thing was, you know. Right. And you, it wasn't scripted. It wasn't scripted. We had no idea. <laughs> Right. Like one item on one page could be an hour when you see how he opens something up and it takes him in all these different directions and he makes all these different connections. Well, and and then what we did afterwards as part of the podcast was we took the five hours where he talks and we broke it down and provided the references and the context. Because a lot of times what he's saying is so dense, like what Brett just said, you have to unpack it. I was unpacking what he said for years after that because you'd be going through the transcript. We're transcripting. I'm like, oh, geez, he said this. I didn't get that the first 10 times or 50 times I watched this, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Episode 40 through 45, Peace Revolution. Is that the roundtable? Yes. I highly recommend that. Very, very valuable expanding discussion. So, CJ, my story, it sounds like all of us had some kind of initial encounter with John's work that we didn't take full advantage of. I dismissed it almost immediately. Mine was either in 2003, 2004. I can't remember exactly. I know it was in graduate school both of those years. And I was preparing just like in the initial stages of some research project before I had even gone into like the academic journals. I was just like... We didn't call it Googling then, but we searching around the internet and looking for something. And I remember that in one of the search results, there was something called dumbing us down. And I was intrigued, so I opened it. It was the first iconoclastic anything that I had encountered since I was seduced by a progressive revisionist history in my undergraduate years, right? So I, I think in a way, I was primed to be skeptical. I was primed to ask questions about the things that most people believed. But that night in the college library, I wasn't very primed because I was tired. I was trying to you know, get a project off the ground that I, I think was a pretty daunting task I had in front of me. So I remember seeing this thing. And I remember the name because it was like Spanish for cat. And I like, so it, that is captured in my memory. The idea of schools being used as a tool to dumb down the masses. And I didn't have like any vocabulary or any contextual understanding as Rich spoke about. So I thought it was interesting. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I guess that if you wanted to control people or again, didn't have the vocabulary socially engineer society, this is how you would do it. I mean, what else would you use besides the schools? But it I, there wasn't much I could do with it at that time. And, you know, I think maybe I just sort of integrated it as a, a general but very vague, very vague suspicion of authority and didn't really make much of it or didn't do anything with it. I mean, after all, I was in school 
trying to be certified to be a public school history teacher. I was in college trying to be certified. And I was also pursuing a master's degree in secondary school leadership to uh, eventually meet my goal of becoming a high school principal, right? Because it was involved with education, but that's also like where the money is if you want to be in finger quotes education. So I didn't want to get distracted from that. But as time went on, I got very distracted from that. Uh, A lot of revelations about the work I was doing, always feeling like I was learning my way out of one job after another, making a list of what at the time, you know, felt like excuses. It felt like a defect in me that I couldn't stick with first um, running this specialized program at a boarding school where I taught a general special ed class and then teaching history in a private school in Vermont and then moving on to tutoring and always eventually like making this list of things that I found troubling or unsatisfying about the job. But as that started to happen, I was trying to make a kind of collage, just pulling from any resources I could, uh, Jonathan Kozel, uh, the radical school reform movement of the 1960s and 70s, people like Neil Postman, who is a well-known education critic. There weren't TED Talks then, but I was finding audio on people talking about the problem of school or the need for school reform, but I didn't really have anything coherent. And around 2006, I started getting into libertarian philosophy. It was actually kind of a a chance encounter there as well. In 2004, I started listening to Coast to Coast AM and got very interested in 9-11 Truth. And that was how I found Rich's podcast, 9-11 Synchronicity. And then I was like, well, I want to find more podcasts about this. This is what podcasting is. This is great. And it was actually Rich's work that opened me up to the world of podcasting. And that's how I started consuming all of this uh, liberty-minded stuff like Free Talk Live and Complete Liberty and Free Domain Radio. So now that philosophy helped sort of unify all of these disparate seeming ideas that I had about education. In 2006, I'm even more primed, or maybe it was 2007, I was sitting in a school library waiting for a student and I would just, you know, in my free time, when I couldn't be listening to podcasts or audiobooks, I'd be you know waiting for students. I'd be at the library, and I was reading the article in Harper's called "Against School." And now, you know, maybe three, four years later, I was ready. I was ready to receive this. And in that piece, you know, John, it's only it's not too long, but it's pretty thorough for its three thousand words against school. You know, he makes the distinction between schooling and education. I remember that really, really resonated with me. And he also sticks in there Alexander Inglis. Alexander Inglis was a very sort of central figure in the shaping of the education system from Harvard in the early twentieth century. His principles of secondary education. He lists these six functions of schooling. And, you know, you start to see that, oh, this totally makes sense, this design. And when you have the, the context of immigration and the need uh, to properly fit people into an industrial economy, all of this starts to move away from a kind of nebulous conspiracy theory into uh, a well-organized plan. So I think the other part of it was... By 2007, 2008, it seemed like Gatto was telling my story. 
there was so much overlap. Like we had worked with both extremes of the school population from, you know, inner city poor, like kids who came from really bad backgrounds, broken homes, had a lot of emotional problems to the the absolute elites of the public school, the AP, Ivy League bound, varsity athlete types. And we both had recognized a lot of overlap in their problems. But he's telling my story from a place of authority. And I don't mean the authority of like a, a teacher, but the authority of knowledge, the authority of experience, the authority of perspective. And it really gave me not only the confidence, but the motivation to start trying to find my own path. If I was passionate about teaching, I realized that all the tracks that I had put myself on and gotten off, now I understood why they were always unsatisfying. And it was really inspiring to like find my own unique way to to have the voice, um, the the educator voice that I wanted to have. And eventually that became this, what I do now, the School Sucks Project. So once I started the show, that was when somebody finally handed me a copy of the Underground History of American Education uh, in 2010. I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't take full advantage of <laughs> that resource at that time either. Uh, but John... John's work really started to inform the show. After I got all my own personal experience out of the way, I almost immediately turned to John's work to start adding depth to the things I was talking about. So that's how he entered my life. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, it's interesting. There's almost like a sort of a hero's journey kind of a thing where it's like, you know, you're presented with the call and you initially reject the call. Um, it seems like there's a little bit of that in each of our each of our stories, you know. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Kind of the, then eventually when the when the student is ready, the master appears, although <laughs> he's not really appearing for the first time. It's just the first time you're fully receptive to it. But anyway, yeah, for those who, who don't know, um, John Taylor Gatto recently died, I guess, uh, not quite three weeks ago. He was in his 80s, and his basic overall story as a person is that he was an award-winning public school teacher in New York City for something around three decades, uh, during which time he, he won New York City and State Teacher of the Year, I think possibly multiple times, and was always as as most good teachers in a conventional schooling system are he was like pretty much always breaking the rules i've i've noticed that like when i think back to every decent teacher that i had in in k through 12 i'm pretty sure all the decent ones were probably bending and breaking rules pretty frequently but then after you know around 3 decades of working within the system and even though he did a lot of good I, th I think we we would all we would all agree you know despite the system being screwed up like he helped a lot of a lot of kids who came through his classroom over those years but still he couldn't um he couldn't take the being a part of that system even though he was able to to kind of be somewhat of a saboteur from within uh he ultimately walked away from it very very kind of publicly 
resigned and became an outspoken voice against the whole conventional schooling paradigm. And it occurred to me in, in the last week or two, just kind of thinking about this, mulling it over, the significance of, of Gatto. I realized that what he really is in many ways, he's the Smedley Butler of school. Uh, in, mm. in the same way that Smedley Butler, you know, was for three decades a super highly decorated U.S. Marine, you know, a war hero, highly decorated for bravery and combat and all that. But he kept kind of having conflict with the system that he was in. And ultimately, like John Taylor Gatto, he came to the conclusion that the system that he was serving wasn't really about what people think it's about, you know, where people think the military is about protecting America and freedom and all that. And then Smelly Butler eventually decided to let us all know that war is a racket. Um, it seems like like John Taylor Gatto did the same sort of thing, you know, and that he had this because he worked in the system so long uh, and because he was, you know, a highly decorated award-winning teacher that he's got potentially the same sort of credibility once he becomes a critic of the system. In the same way that Smedley Butler, you know, it carries more weight when this super highly decorated Marine Corps general uh, criticizes American wars and military industrial complex and all that, that it carries more credibility than if it's just like, you know, some hippie student at uh, the University of Colorado saying, oh, man, let me tell you that war is all about making money, man. In the same way that, that when Gatto criticizes the conventional schooling model, um, the fact that he worked in it so long he has that credibility. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is is, is is my comparison valid here? Well, what you just said about maybe maybe the left treatment about war, right? That war is all about money, man. You know, like that. that's kind of trite and worn out. And I think that there were some very good school critics on the left, but they were criticizing it almost primarily or, or at least most vocally about its use as a tool in the furtherance or the continuance of a capitalist system. That whole narrative was kind of worn out by, you know, the end of the 60s, the 70s. So left school criticism did exist through some of the names that I mentioned. But on the other side, if you think about where Gatto put, I quit, I think, right, his resignation after winning all those awards that you talked about, it's in the op-ed section of the Wall Street Journal. So this is not the traditional venue for uh, school criticism. Now, schools had been criticized, and, and maybe this is why, John, I don't know, this is purely speculation, the, there had been more of a friendly environment towards criticizing the public schools created in the 1980s through the Reagan administration, because at one point they were actually talking about eliminating the Federal Department of Education, which was not really an institution at that point. Like most people don't know that the official Department of Education was less than 20 years old. I mean, it had prior forms, but as like a federal department with a secretary, that was a fairly new thing. So there was a more welcoming climate, I think, on the right for that kind of criticism. Most of the left criticism is talking about these giant institutions, let's say the institution of capitalism. By criticizing that or by asking people to direct their attention to the problem of, uh, you know, an economic system that basically ran a good part of the Western world at that point, you're taking a tremendous amount of their power or their efficacy away from them and saying, like, look, this is imposed on you. You know, John 
does a little of that, but he he focuses more on consumerism in your role as a consumer or a mindless consumer. And even though he's making some of the same arguments, uh, you know, especially like the shape school took in the 20th century and who it took that shape for, right? There were plenty of ideologues and people like John Dewey at Columbia University, but you know, they're being funded by people who are very much, people we would consider capitalists in many ways, like, like the Rockefellers. So he's actually taking it down from this place where you can't do anything about this. And he's talking to people about their roles as consumers. So I think that was, that was an interesting adjustment that he did through his work there wasn't much criticism of the schools on the right. You have Sam Blumenfeld and Charlotte Iserby, and that's about it. And when John released that letter in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know. I mean, maybe Rich could answer this. I don't know how prominent either of them were. Blumenfeld had been writing, I think, since the 50s or the 60s, but a lot of his work had never gotten traction in the mainstream, certainly not in like the Wall Street Journal like John did. And Charlotte Iserby was probably still not in that game at that point. Uh, so it, it was definitely a turning point. It was kind of it was kind of an explosion. It was a, it was a new voice and it was a new way of talking about the school problem that I think initially people didn't know, and that's maybe why John is so thoroughly ignored. Because if you acknowledge his existence, you have to actually have some kind of reason for criticizing him or dismissing him. But that opens up for anybody who's supporting school or any of the systems that school supports. That's opening Pandora's box. So better to just ignore him. I think that's that, that was an interesting perspective that his criticism added, even though there had been decades of discussion about what was wrong with the schools and how to change the schools and what the schools were for, he had something very novel at the beginning of the 1990s. John Taylor Gatto is the Smedley Butler of schooling and both blew whistles on attempts to take over and un take over the country, undermine freedom and liberty in the constitutional republic. Different guys, different eras, but I think both of those guys are products of their environment. I think they were raised around people who knew right from wrong and had the confidence to take actions. Even like I was listening again to Brett's memorial of John this morning because he put out this really, really well thought out and well orchestrated and well organized, thoughtful piece on John. And when you, when you listen to what's going on, is this guy, is this genetic? Is it, did he do something that no one else can do? No. What he did was he worked within a system and broke the rules. That's why he was successful. If he would have followed the rules of the schools he was teaching at, he would have done a disservice to those children because the system is set up to hurt them. And he said, hey, if I break a couple rules and send you guys out to get real world experience in a responsible, safe, and well thought out way, and they said, yeah, they loved it. That's why people loved John because he was, it's not because he broke the rules. It's because of what he enabled them to do and to see and to be able to learn how to access the levers of power and to actually write their own script in life. And instead of having their script written by people tens or hundreds of years ago who said, oh, we're going to create obedient workers. We're going to create cogs and machines. So when you think of John, think of it as anybody can do what John did. He just did it. He was a product of, of his environment. He came from a place where people wouldn't tolerate acting like that. And that was another place where I, I related to him. And Brett can relate too, because Brett has recently moved to Pittsburgh. And that's where John grew up. And I grew up outside Pittsburgh. 
So over the years, since, you know, he, he had a stroke a couple of weeks after we filmed the ultimate history lesson. And so for people listening for the last several years of John's life, he was confined to uh, a hospital bed, sometimes in the hospital, sometimes for the past uh, five years in his living room. So I would visit him often and he's a very jovial character. And that also is a product of his upbringing. He faced a harsh life and developed not a callous against it where some people get bitter and frustrated. He developed a really healthy sense of humor about the whole thing and how to be persistent despite resistance, you know? So I don't know, there's a lot of lessons. And I guess for some people who aren't familiar with his work, what you're hearing about is a, a multifaceted real life character who was hidden from you because his story is so much more interesting than what they're peddling off as uh, schooling and education and, and things like this. Like you would learn a lot about yourself and a lot about the world from looking at his work. And it's not like here's uh, political science. Here's, here's about the civil war. Like the school would teach you. It's a much more interesting thought process when you follow in his footsteps. And then learn how to carve your own path, of course. And just to speak to his integrity really quickly, I mean, this is, I think this discussion might have happened in the, the ultimate history lesson, but considering that upbringing and those, those challenges that Rich just described, I remember a couple of times talking about how excited he was about Richard Branson. Do you, Rich, do you remember the, the Richard Branson story? Of course. Where, oh, yeah, his mom works for the airline and she sends him off to find his way home at four years old. And he does it in like half a day. And, you know, he says, nothing, nothing ever seemed hard in my life after that. And when he tells this story uh, to Rich in, in the documentary, he's just like so excited and, and so happy and so visibly impressed by what Br Richard Branson did. But you can also see this in his teaching to what Rich said about breaking the rules uh, and uh, CJ, you said the same thing, right? Like the good teachers you had broke the rules. He wanted to, uh, his words were, front load experience for young people. And if you watch the, the little television documentary, uh, Classrooms of the Heart, almost none of it's in the classroom, right? He's out on the street with kids, sending them off with truck drivers, or you want to go work with the principal for the day. He, he's putting these kids in these novel and challenging situations where they can come away with some sense of accomplishment, some sense of a perseverance, and some dignity, most of all, that's like sitting still in a desk and being told what to do all day. There's nothing meaningful about that. There's nothing that feels purposeful about that. So I, I think that he continued like right up until the end of his teaching career when that television special, Classrooms of the Heart, was filmed. That was like within a, a, a year of his resignation. This is what he's doing. He still has the energy and the commitment to his students to be doing, to, to be helping them create these kinds of experiences that I think were so formative for him as, you know, a, a young man in the 1940s living a, a struggle of a life. Uh, I mean, life out here back then was a struggle or at least a grind for most people. And you know, I think that relates to the character that Rich is, Rich is talking about and it developing here. I mean, certainly there was a lot of places in the country where that could happen, but there's a kind of pride in that grit in, in this part of the world, I've noticed for sure. And there's, there's two stories that I know are not published where it gives you some insight into where John broke the rules earlier 
Would you guys like to hear him? I'm Please. Gonna, sure. I'm yeah, absolutely. Sense, one of the characters, I have to censor his name because I don't have the authority to tell the story publicly. But I do have John telling me these stories on film. So it's hysterical to see him. <laughs> he, so he's recalling back to his days at Cornell. And he had a famous roommate, well, a now famous roommate. So his roommate at Cornell is now famous. And these guys got up to some antics. So his roommate wasn't allowed to have a car on campus. So John ends up getting a horse and buggy because there's no rules against horse and buggies, right? <laughs> so now John's dressed up like he's, he's the chauffeur of this horse and buggy. And this horse is shitting all over the street. And then, of course, a parking permit is issued. So accessing the levers of power is sometimes about, oh, I can't do this. Well, you don't say you didn't say I couldn't do this. And then they capitulate. Right. <laughs> and then the same roommate had like a Carmen Ghia, a beat up Carmen Ghia. And he wanted to enter it into a race that was uh, kind of local to them, a, a nationally famous race. And they got turned down because the car wasn't uh, expensive enough or robust enough or couldn't pass inspection or what have you. So these guys go, they get in the race but they, they drive through a cornfield into the race as the race is going on <laughs> and they're running around the track, getting chased by the cops and stuff. Nice. So before, you know, as he's going through Cornell and teachers college at Columbia, this guy, he wasn't uh, like a nefarious character, but he was always seeing that, Oh, you've got these rules to prevent people from ha enacting freedom which otherwise, you know, would be going on if you didn't have so many rules. So he's a product of an environment, of a hardworking steel mill town, Monongahela River environment of the 1930s and 40s, right? Post-depression. Uh, post so it's a, it's a very hard time. And so then he takes that to other places in the country. And New York City is where he really lets it fly. And then after he's, he's you know, thinking about those 30 years in teaching and he sees this story about Richard Branson, you know, it's, it's about how do you know where you live and can you talk to anybody? Can you talk to people to find your way home? That, that's the lesson right there. Right. And one of the last times that I saw John, this was probably April of this past year. I, the last time I saw him was on August. So in April, he said um, he was very excited. He was trying to explain something to somebody else. And I walk in, he's like, Richard, you know how to talk to anybody. Where did you learn these skills? And how, how, you know, I said, well, first off, it's from coming from a place where we think of everybody as equal. Like we don't talk differently to how, to people according to how you're dressed, for instance. Right. So the first key is treating everyone else like a human being and then empathizing with them as a human being. Cause we're all going through a struggle and that you, you know, Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. That type of mentality. I don't care if you're from the highest place in society or you're sweeping the gutter. You deserve the same type of respect and communication, right? So this sort of thing. And that's what he was trying to get to. I don't know if he was finishing an article or if he was emailing with somebody. But as soon as we got there, he had this passionate question. He's like, how did you learn to do this? I, I was from my upbringing. It wasn't from schooling. Certainly wasn't from schooling. It's from being brought up around honest people who speak their mind in a kind and gentle way right? You can get truth across without offending people. You don't need to like get all belligerent. So he left us a legacy of lessons that so many people have yet to learn. And it's between his work and Charlotte Iserbeet's work, because John gives you the broad strokes of how school or education was corrupted and turned into schooling. 
And then Charlotte Iserby comes and says, hey, in the 20th century, these nonprofit foundations wanted, you know, basically to merge America with the communist way of life and bring in, in socialism. And in order to do that, they had to dumb people down. And then the other component I would point people to would be um, Norman Dodd. He was uh, the executive director of the Reese Committee that looked into the nonprofit tax-free foundations and their infiltration of the school system. And it's horrific. So John paints out you know, the timeline. Charlotte Iserby comes and says, hey, here is Carnegie Foundation. You know, here's their minutes. Here's you know, these types of things. Here's the blue book from 1934. And Norman Dodd's a whistleblower from within the government. And between those three pieces, you can see that something is broken. It's broken on purpose. It's broken systematically. And it attacks the youngest minds among us. So that tells you about the nature of the people designing that system. And then you just need to turn around, walk the other way and figure out how to educate yourself and survive and thrive in life. And schooling wasn't going to give you that anyway. So don't indenture yourself to school. Yeah, I want to I want to return to um, the corporate foundations uh, in a moment to, to drill in on all that stuff a little bit more. But first, I wanted to return to something that both of you have, have kind of mentioned, um, which I found very interesting. And I actually had jotted down in my notes uh, that I'm looking at today you know, before this conversation even started, this whole idea of what the heck is so special about Western Pennsylvania? (laughs) Because when you look at it, obviously, uh, Brett lives there now. Rich, you're originally from that area. Ron Paul is originally from Pittsburgh. Uh, Gatto, you know, from, from that area as well. I mean, and you just go right on back. Um, Smedley Butler wasn't from Western Pennsylvania, but he was from Pennsylvania. Um, and and I mean, go all the way, go all the way back to the Whiskey Rebellion, right? What is it? Is there something in the water? Is is there something about the the landscape that just makes these uh, rugged it individuals? Wasn't, it wasn't an easy area to really indoctrinate. You have a lot of people that live close to reality, so it's hard to indoctrinate those people. You got coal miners, you got steel workers. There's a hardy and robust familial structure, and it's people of all nationalities. Like Pittsburgh was a true melting pot. In fact, Pittsburgh today, correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, because I haven't lived there in 20 years, had entire sections of the city that were ethnic. And it was totally, that's, that, that would be the Croatian section. Here's the Serbian section. Here's the Polish section. You know, And so people got along. These people all worked together at the steel mills and in the mines and stuff like that. The history goes way back. It was there was a lot of abolition movement. There was underground railroad. There was a whole bunch of cool things that happened. There was uh, Fort Pitt, which used to be Fort Duquesne, a French fort, and George Washington. And the town I grew up in, Beaver, Pennsylvania, uh, had Fort McIntosh, which was a, a early colonial fort that would guard the river headed up to uh, to Pittsburgh. So I I totally agree with what Rich is saying, and I think there's there's a spirit of Pittsburgh that you know has been alive or existed for most of the 20th century that certainly radiates to its surroundings like you know beaver is sort of a similar distance away like where rich grew up is a similar distance away to the northwest while uh, monongahela is kind of to the southeast but all of the places around here that i've traveled there is a real community focus you know, the geography of the city is really interesting. And I think that lends itself to this. It's very community oriented. People care who their neighbors are. They care about their neighbors. Pittsburgh is the city that is just composed of 90 very distinct neighborhoods. 
And you know, one of the the final reasons why I actually decided to move to Pittsburgh was a documentary that my friend, who grew up in another uh, you know kind of outlying town called Butler, uh, showed me like right before I made the decision to choose Pittsburgh over the other relocation spots I was considering. Because of the the steel industry, this was a messy place, you know, in the 50s and the 60s. And H.L. Mencken even suggested that the city should be abandoned, that human beings shouldn't even try to live in Pittsburgh. And today, you know, it, I mean, Pittsburgh is kind of San Francisco-esque in that the city is at water level. And then like most of the residential areas kind of rise up on these bluffs around it. it be, and that's where, you know, you had to put all the people that you needed to be at that water level for, you know, the steel and the shipping and the coal and everything that went on here for so long. Um, so there's all of these sort of impossible residential arrangements like scattered all throughout these hills around the city. Oh, no, I completely lost my train of thought. Well, John would want me to say that <laughs> <laughs> the Steelers, the Pirates and the Penguins are, you know, some of those, those were the, some of the things he would write about in every email. P.S. Uh-huh. Hope the Steelers win this week. Uh, I would ask him if he needs something. Uh, Janet and I could use a couple Steelers shirts. <laughs> Send us a terrible towel. You know, these 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 things, you, you know, I'm trying to make sure that they have like they need, need. And he's like, yeah, yeah, uh, Steelers. And so it shows you where his mentality was at. Like he grew up in that town. He lived a whole bunch of other places. He was always of a Pittsburgh mentality because that's where he established his his values and his ethics and his morals and his work ethic, you know, and the fact that, for when I was first getting to know John and Janet after the ultimate history lesson and John had had his stroke and you're, you're trying to help and aid in any way you can, but you're dealing with two people who are so, so self-reliant that, and they know that if they accept help, it makes them weaker. Like they come from this, he called it the, the Scotch Irish mentality between the two of them. He's like, so once I, once I got it through to him, I was like, look, the people that are trying to donate to your situation and improve your situation, it's not you going in debt to them by accepting it. They are paying back a debt to you for what you've already done for them and for their children and changed their lives. And then he's like, oh, okay, that's cool. That, you know, but you had to understand like his ethics, his integrity and his philosophy before he could even accept help in a situation where he, you know, had a whole lot of trouble helping himself in that situation. And so, that is something that I think is ingrained in a good way through childhood. Those types of ideas about fierce self-reliance and knowing that if you're accepting help from somebody else, in some way, you're making yourself weaker, right? But it's people helping each other, right? Because that actually right. jogs my memory. You know, the, I was trying to set this scene of, you know, all these people living on hills around the city, basically choking to death in the rising smoke from the point, which was a rail yard. Um, you know, where there's all these trains coming in and out, you have all these Coke plants. And, you know, in the 1960s, it was community by community making a decision and getting organized. They didn't need the EPA. They didn't need the National Guard. People got together and they helped each other. They scraped the soot off houses. They uh, restored areas like a lot of the cleanup and, and the, the shift from one industry to other industries. If we look around other places in the Midwest, like Cleveland, uh, you know, pick your city in Michigan that's that's run by, you know, like the automotive unions. Detroit certainly comes to mind. There there wasn't a willingness, there wasn't a flexibility to adapt to a new industry. People here, there's a lot of personal investment and community investment in this place. You know, people are very, very neighborly. 
And this city survived and this city moved into the 21st century as a modern city, the same way, uh, different, I should say, from a lot of other cities in this general region where they've just kind of like stuck with their old industry. Like Pittsburgh is modern and that actually, you can't see all this just from being on the street in Pittsburgh today, but that was largely a product of people's community orientation and involvement here. It started there and then they put a marketing campaign on it called Renaissance. So in the 70s, they did the Renaissance and Pittsburgh cleaned up. And it's really good that they did because in the 80s, all the steel mills closed down because everything went to Japan and people had the mentality that they were not victims, that they could still determine their their, their, their self-path, their life's path on their own. They're not dependent on losing their jobs. And that's how a lot of those people survived. Some of them moved away, but other people pivoted and did what was necessary to remain there because it's a very friendly, like like what you're hinting towards is like people talk to each other. They talk to each other in a real way. They're very willing to help out and they're very self-reliant, meaning they have the ability and the knowledge and the experience to help other people out. It's actually pretty cool. It was a great mm-hmm. place to grow up. Yeah, the I, Steelers- learned, I learned a lot more about the world by moving out of there because growing up around a b- bunch of nice, honest people doesn't really tell you how the world works. <laughs> Indeed. And that was that was actually going to be part of my answer to CJ as well, is that when you go, so, my what my observation has been is that the stratification, like social stratification is much more visible in other places, right? Like I grew up in New England, Exeter, New Hampshire, and visited Boston, Massachusetts all throughout my youth. Like from you know growing up in Beaver to working in New York City, I would have to think for you, Rich, the, the visibility or the palpability of that social stratification uh, had to be like quite a shock. It's a layer cake. There's a lot of layers to it. Yeah. <laughs> right. A lot of layers. Some layers you don't even see in the movies. That was, that was the bridging the gap part I needed to do. Mm. Like between Goodfellas and reality, there is a tangible connection and it's called government. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things that Gatto is, uh, you know, so great in all of his work at at pointing out and at explaining, is that connection between the the schooling system as it has evolved in America over the past hundred fifty years or so, and the kind of cultivation of of a caste system, right? That that's that's one of the functions of school is to sort people out into into castes and to kind of give them the sense that you know you have to know your place and stay in your place sort of um, throwing out the kind of older american ideal of mobility and you know the self-made man and all that it's the it's the reproduction system of the, of a caste system right that's true yeah, one of the things that that I always liked about Gatto ever since I started really reading him and everything and listening to him is that that makes him different from a lot of I, I guess what you might consider uh, mainstream libertarianism and conservatarianism and kind of Ayn Rand libertarianism and all that is that w- while Gatto has, you know, a very um sophisticated critique of of the state and its influence, he also includes in his critique of how the system got the way it is the big corporations and and the big corporate foundations you know the the ford carnegie and rockefeller foundations in particular um, but others as well and i always appreciated that about him that he he included a critique of corporate capitalism as it as it exists this kind of cronyist corporatist system that we have 
Um, you know, he he'd never seemed hostile to the actual free market as such, but that he kind of acknowledged that these big corporate foundations and and big corporate interests, particularly when they start, you know, using the state for their own their own betterment and all that, that these are also dangerous institutions that we shouldn't, you know, automatically trust big business any more than we ought to automatically trust big government. And the whole idea that part of what school is designed to do is to create employees so that you don't have anymore a country where a large percentage of the population are either self-employed, you know, what Gatto would refer to as an independent livelihood, a large percentage of the population is not going to be either self-employed or working towards becoming self-employed. And, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that probably all three of us can sympathize with is wanting to have an independent livelihood in which you are not dependent upon um, either, either the state or some, you know, large corporate sort of uh, entity for your livelihood, because that, that takes away your freedom and that perhaps it'd be better to make a little less money, but be uh, independent than, you know, to be a little more comfortable, but be completely beholden to some giant institution. I think it could be argued that the shape the U.S. economy has taken over the course of the 20th century is actually the result of some of the training in schools, which was set up as the result of, you know, socially engineering for an industrial economy. Uh, One of the things that was considered to be a real menace in the late 1800s and early 1900s is what a lot of these people referred to as overproduction. And this was, you know, this isn't like too much stuff rolling off the the end of the line at the factory and going into boxes and going onto boxcars. It was the overproductiveness of individuals, you know, people who would go out and, you know, forge these independent livelihoods for themselves. That didn't jibe with what the managers of society needed at the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, it's interesting, too. It reminds me like a couple of connections here. That explains the caste system, right? Because you can't have people who are independent-minded and exercising volition because they're not going to work in that system. So they all have to be standardized to a certain level. Uh, It also reminds me of just when I think about like what this work meant to me and how this helped me become a better learner and a better student of history. Rich and I did a show back in 2013. Tony Myers was with us as well. And one of my listeners, somebody named Artie, asked this question like, I'm a little skeptical of some of the things that John says in the underground history because there seems to be the absence in, in some places, there's an absence of primary sources. And, you know, I think what we decided, the three of us, in, in answering that question is he's really inviting people to go on their own adventures here. And it's it's an interesting adventure for those who are willing to have it because now with things like archive.org, you can find these books that he just kind of casually or quickly references or pulls a, a maybe a seemingly even out of context quote from. You can go and you can read through these books yourself. You can actually see not just the covers, but the insides of some of these books in the video series that I made uh, about the underground history between 2013 and 2015. I found lots of the books that he's talking about. And, and what you find inside them is actual 
you know, if you're looking for it and if you're ready to receive it, is an actual understanding of what these people were trying to do. It takes it away, as I mentioned before, from these notions of an evil conspiracy theory, and it gives you like a real historical understanding of the of that that setting of what people's concern, the people who held power, what their concerns were, what their fears were, and it's very easy to to you know remove yourself from their mindset and see this as an evil plan. They wanted to take away people's ability to decide their their own path in life, right? But that is what happened, right? And and by doing this, by this project that they undertook at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, they thought they were saving the world. I believe that most of these people, whether they were industrialists or part of the corporate structure, the government structure, the academic structure, a lot of them probably believed or at least convinced themselves that what they were doing was saving the world. But it was that very idea, and you can find this in that book that I already mentioned, Principles of Secondary Education by Alexander Inglis and another Harvard guy, Elward Coverley. Uh, and his book was Public Education in the United States, I think, where he talks about, Coverley talks about the lengthening of the period of dependence, right? This idea that if people feel like they're adults when they're 12, they might go out and try and do something. And that's not exactly what we want. That's not going to serve our mission. So it does take a little bit of discipline, I think, to recognize the the historical context that all of these stories go into. But John, through being very vague in certain points, invites the readers of the underground history and other books to discover that for themselves by actually not saying, you know, hey, just take my word for it, like a lot of people do. You will wind up, you know, eye to words with what these people are actually saying. And you're like, oh my goodness, I actually, I actually understand this. And it, it's pretty empowering because to see all of history or all of American history or all of school history as a, you know, a conspiracy that you're underneath or that you're a victim of, it's not particularly empowering. But to understand it as an as an organized plan that at the time made sense to a lot of you know responsible people, uh, I found that to be very helpful. I think that was an excellent observation, and I would like to just add a little more value for the audience. It's super empowering because you're right. John invites you to go on these journeys by the way he writes. And this brought up uh, questions and people were like, where are the references? And we need a footnote. And I talked to John about it. And he was very, at that point, he's very against the academic structure of writing and giving everybody, here's all the breadcrumbs, right? So, so what did we do? I have a friend, Kevin Cole, who um, amassed all, almost all the books that John referenced in his books. So there's a few that are kind of hard to find, but like these are findable. And then for myself, I went through, I probably have two whole bookshelves of books that are just references from what John wrote about. And Cubberly, uh, there's several other people. What, what John's telling you, it's worse. John's giving you the, the easy version. When you read it in Bertrand Russell's own words in two books that he wrote that like are bookends on 40 years. So he wrote one in like 1913 and one on 1940 something. The two, like it's scientific management of human beings, like they're cattle. So like John, John tells you, here's a chapter and he tries to explain it to you. But then when you go to look at the source material, it's, it's a lot more horrifying and it would be disempowering to be under that system and not know about it. The empowerment comes from 
oh, wow, I see these guys. They're real people who have taken real actions in time to subvert the consciousness of human beings. I consider that to kind of be evil, right? So well, I want to know yeah. about it, and I want to warn other people. It's like, hey, this system is set up as a trap. I want to be like Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. Just look at it, like understand it and avoid it for yourself. I can't avoid these things for you, but we can put up signs around it and say, hey, look, it's a trap. For me, though, the valuable exercise was to to like to read Cubberly or like to, to see the whole Woodrow Wilson speech where, you know, he says we want one class of people to have a liberal education. We want a much larger class, a class of necessity to forego that privilege, <laughs> you know, and just be workers um, like to read that whole speech, to dig into these books. I remember doing a show about yeah, those six principles that are the six functions that Inglis laid out and I never finished it. Because the thing that I just kept wrestling with was like, I don't know what I would say, right? If I was in his position at Harvard University with all of this incredible responsibility and answerable to the people that he's answerable to, to, you know, make this design and find solutions to this problem, which were probably pretty scary in the 19 aughts and the 1910s, this influx of immigration, all these different people creating these really discomforting disruptions in American society. What would I do if I had to put on those shoes and removed as it was for English and all of these guys was, you know, the respect for humanity that I think the philosophy of Liberty brings, right? None of them had that. So what would I do? Like, no, they would, they remember, would all flip the switch in the Milgram experiment. So no, they're exactly. But I remember being a young progressive Democrat out of college thinking that I knew everything. I mean, imagine how much worse this was for them. That's like a pseudo empowerment, right? It, exactly. And for them, I think it is as well, but it's it's a little more empowered, right? When, when they're in those ivory towers um, mm. and they feel like they're doing this really important response, especially when they feel also like they're basically, you know, they've got their body weight up against this door. And if they let it go, God knows what kind of horrors are going to pour through. So you your know, argument is that they did it for the best of intentions. And I would remind you that World War One was fought for world peace. No, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. Best, yeah. intentions. best intentions. Right. But that obviously best intentions. I'm not being uh, who was it? Uh, what's it? the category, uh, categorical imperative? Is that Kant? I'm not yeah. being Kantian mm. here. Right. I'm not saying, well, let's forgive them because they tried. Right. I'm just saying it's 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 a really challenging intellectual exercise to say, yeah, but what what would I have done, especially like like I was saying, graduating from college with this kind of progressive mindset that the world needs to be under the control of responsible, smart people. And almost everybody is not that. I mean, I think that's why. John was so transformative for me because that was still a part of my thinking when I encountered that. That was still a mindset that in many ways I took into my career as a teacher that I know the truth and I will bless you with the truth that I learned from my college professors. So I'm just saying that his invitation to go into this work for yourself, for those who are willing to accept that challenge it's beyond an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional one to engage with some of this stuff. And I have an artifact here that portrays what you were just describing, that the, you know, the progressives, they have the best of intentions. They're almost like the people who run the asylum. They have the best intentions. I have here Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a guide to understanding the world's great writing. It's monarch notes, like cliff notes, by John Taylor Gatto, 
Queens College, City University, New York, 1975. So one of the first things he did wasn't write his own work. He's like, I'm going to do, I'm going to get paid to do the cliff notes version of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm -hmm. Cause that's where he felt he was working. (laughs) Nice. People with the best intentions, but not really helping you out. Right. Yeah. Well, we all know what, what the road to hell is paved with. Yeah. I don't even know if I like best of intentions. Like, I, I don't even know if that's a fitting label to put. You're just trying to take the edge off of these people are human beings. They weren't necessarily evil people, although actions that they've taken and proved to take away people's freedom, which is kind of evil. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's fear. It's a scarcity mindset. There's lots of labels that you could put to it besides just having the best of intentions. Did they think they were saving the world? Yeah, sure, but that's also very open-ended. Saving the world for who and for what, right? But they also write openly about wanting to control other people, to control their actions, behaviors, thoughts, perceptions. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We know there's plenty of overlap with like the Fabian Society where it's not, this is not about the betterment <laughs> of everybody. Yeah. Chapter right? eight of the Underground History of American Education, Scientific Dictatorship or Scientific Management, I think that one is. Right, right. So they see themselves as stewards of the planet, right? And maybe some modifications need to be made to the things living on the planet to be the best stewards of the planet. Which is the same plan that Cecil Rhodes put forth for the British Empire that landed America in the situation where schooling gets or education gets totally taken over by the tax-free foundations. And these tax-free foundations can only appear after the Federal Reserve System and the Income Tax Act are put into place to harness everybody else. And then the first one was Carnegie, and he writes this book in 1896, Triumphant Democracy, and he's an internationalist. And then the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations in the 20th century copy onto that model, and they take all this Prussian education, which I guess if you provide context for the audience in a soundbite, it would look like this. Napoleon had an amateur army. Prussia had a professional army. Napoleon beats Prussia in 1806 at the Battle of Jena. Prussia is embarrassed and they say, what happened and how do we control our soldiers so they don't run in fear off the field? They came up with a way to militarize education. That's what schooling is. Americans thought that was really smart, brought it here. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s and through to the 21st century, it is still here. And what they would refer to it today is like common core. That's that's the uh, evolutionary uh, the historical evolution of, of Prussian schooling Ooh, oh. with so many add-on packs in the meantime, right? Upgrades. You know, yeah. <laughs> downgrades to freedom. That's what they are. Indeed. At every step is a, is a downgrade to, uh, intellectual and emotional freedom. Yeah, absolutely. For the, for the people that, that system's being imposed on. So inside every problem is the opportunity and the solution. And that's kind of what we're all bringing to the table is that, these things that were taken away from you in order to control you, you can learn how to put them back. You can unflip those switches. You can turn your thinking back on. John believed that everybody had innate genius inside of them and that school's purpose was to cover that up and obscure it so that you never find it, so that you think you know, so that you never ask the questions to actually go and find out the real answers. Right. I, th- I think what John did so well was he pointed out that so many of the things somewhat thinking people, you know, reasonably intelligent people who are thinking a little bit, think are bugs of the schooling system. He pointed out that they're not bugs, they're features. Right. Yeah. And they're features that have benefits, but not for the students. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it seems to me like one of the, the, the best terms to sort of summarize a lot of the mindset of the sorts of people that he discusses and references uh, so often is paternalism. And, and that the term paternalism, the concept of patern, uh, paternalism, that kind of uh, squares the circle where on the one hand, these, uh, these do-gooder, you know, progressive types or whatever can look themselves in the mirror every morning and think, by golly, I'm doing such good for mankind, you know, I'm so great. And, and meanwhile, they're doing things that if you look at it from another perspective, um, you know, they're taking away, away people's volition and and they're imposing certain uh, beliefs and patterns of behavior on people um that paternalism is is really kind of what what explains it all this idea you know you could bring in the concept of the justified sinner um yes, and all that absolutely. kind of stuff that idea that well I'm doing it for their own good so even when at times I might be saying things and implementing policies that have some negative side effects or that maybe I deep down feel a little bit conflicted about at the end of the day I can wave the magic wand of paternalism and the justified sinner and say well but it's ultimately for the greater good well, yeah, I mean, this goes back to Calvinism, right? I mean, that's the origin of the concept of justified sinning. And I know this thread runs through, you know, John talks about this a lot, that idea, right, of a, what, what emboldens that paternalism, and this is exactly what you're saying, I think, is this idea of moral superiority, right? What other choice do we have? That's what Cecil Rhodes was told at Oxford University, right? We have to do this. It would be cruel of us not to spread British society all over the world. But I think that that story gets easier and easier to tell generation after generation. I mean, you could see this, uh, the legacy of this idea, especially once it merges with pragmatism, the philosophy of pragmatism around the beginning of the 20th century. You can see the legacy of this last Friday night on Real Time with Bill Maher, right? Same mindset, that progressive sort of, we're the smart people and it needs our will needs to be imposed, uh, imposed on everybody else or else that lives in that that philosophy right up to the present moment. That was the Bill Maher show. I thought that was an hour long ad for Dunning Kruger. (laughs) (laughs) That's I thought that because the justified sinning that was the term, you know, obviously a term I learned a while ago, but I'm watching the show on Friday night and, and it comes to mind because he says something like, well, it's okay for us to do this because we're on this side. Right. It's, so it's right. justified sinning is when there is yeah. the recognition that something is wrong when it's done to you or something that you or somebody that you care about. But if you're doing it because you're coming at it from this position of moral superiority, suddenly it becomes a necessary means to an end. Well, and the moral superiority is a sidecar to the motorcycle of Schadenfreude. Sure. So philosophically, this pragmatism that comes up in the 1800s, 1900s. Um, I think that John quotes Oliver Wendell Holmes, former Supreme Court Chief Justice, as saying that, that the truth is what rich and people, rich and strong people say it is. Pragmatism is that idea. It's not that it's not a philosophical truth, right? These people practice a philosophy of solipsism, which is an anti-philosophy. It's an anti-reality. It's bullshit. It's illusions. So understanding so that's another thing the practicality of philosophy is to find truth in your everyday world did any of us get that in public schooling that i was i thought was i was i absent that day or did we not get that <laughs> that seems important to survive and thrive in the world and be successful 
right? Or if it's absence is there, what would that create? Oh, it creates a bunch of people that'll believe anything and run their, their lives off of emotional stimulus reaction instead of stimulus thought and response. And that's the difference between freedom and slavery. So what they've cre- created is a systematic conveyor belt to produce slaves who think they're free. Yeah, and they can justify it to themselves in some some very flowery language, like um, I have here in my hand my battered old copy of Underground History, and here's one of my favorites from uh, Occasional Letter Number 1, dated 1906, from Rockefeller's General Education Board. John put a big block quote of this document in the book. It says... In our dreams, people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions, i.e. intellectual and character education, fade from our minds and unhampered by tradition. We work our own good will upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, educators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have ample supply. The task we set before ourselves is very simple. We will organize children and teach them to do in a perfect way the things their fathers and mothers are doing in an imperfect way. And then um, John writes below that quote, this mission statement will reward multiple rereadings. <laughs> <laughs> so the fun thought experiment, it's not super fun, the interesting thought experiment to do at this point, and I invite everybody in the audience to do it as well, is to think about the setting, right? Where somebody writes that down and looks at it and goes, yeah, this is a perfectly okay thing to say. And then the people that wrote it down had unlimited resources and influence to mm-hmm. carry that forward without your knowing about it. So that was a that was a thing that kind of blocked me from seeing John's messages. I thought, oh, the Rockefeller's involvement in this is kind of cliche. But then when you get into their tax free foundation <laughs> and what they actually, I'm like, I'm like, he, you know, he doesn't like. You can't do it justice by writing about it. You have to get people to actually read what they wrote, and that's right. that's the thing. It's like reading John's books is just an invitation to some really interesting aspects in the real world that you can go access at a higher level than you could ever get through his book. But his book's like the signpost, like, go check this out. This is going on. It, some people have seen it, and it's, it's, it's like verifiable. Like it's, 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 it's out there to see. Right. I, I often use the phrase um, hidden in plain sight. To, yeah. to refer to a lot of these things where they're not secret in the sense of like, you know, some classified CIA document, but they are secret in the sense that they are esoteric. You know, they might even be, I mean, today, um, like we said before, in the days of the internet, a lot of this stuff can just be Googled up for free um, in seconds at archive.org and various other places. Um, and even before the, the internet, I mean, a fair number of this stuff could be found at a decent sized public or college library, but the elites know 
the average person is not going to pick up certain types of books or even certain types of magazines. And so they always have kind of the esoteric versus the exoteric uh, message of what they're saying, you know, where when they're in a forum or a setting that they believe some of the general public might um, actually listen to them or read them, they'll say things that sound more acceptable. But then when they're in a setting where they think, um, average people are very unlikely to ever, you know, go, go look it up. They'll speak much more honestly, knowing that like, just by having it in a certain type of publication, it's like kryptonite that'll scare away the general public. Oh no, that's a, that's a giant book with lots of pages and tiny font and no pictures. Well, I'm not looking there, but to the, to the people who are not part of the big club as, as George Carlin called it, um, who do eventually start to follow up some of these threads and put these things together. Um, I found anyway, and, and maybe it depends a little bit on one's personality and all that, but I found it to be like really kind of an exciting thing to follow up some of these threads, you know, not just from uh, John's work, but from other people as well. It's kind of a, an intellectual adventure to go out there and, and sort of put together a lot of these things that are hidden in plain sight. And then eventually to figure out a way to try and, you know, share what you've put together with others and, and hopefully inspire some of them to kind of do their own DIY following of the breadcrumbs. That's the game. You're standing on X marks to spot. These things are hidden in plain sight. There are gatekeepers to discourage you from looking for these things. Now one is inside your head. Oh, that book's too big and thick to read. I can't do that. And the other is in the media where they say, oh, if you look at these things, you're a conspiracy theory. Now you want to tie some threads together? The CIA memo on conspiracy theory, document 1035-960, is about, that 24-page memo is about Gatto's roommate from Cornell that I told the stories earlier. So I'm not going to tell you, but you can go put those pieces together yourself and figure it out. Pretty interesting stuff. Do you guys know the memo? I'm sorry for the context. Um, it's where the CIA said, use the term conspiracy theory to disparage oh, people yeah, yeah, yeah. questions it's about the Warren report. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I'm trying to remember, and I, and I know I just recently was watching the part of the ultimate history lesson where, where he talked about that. I just want to congratulate you for standing X marks the spot. That's the thing. These things are out there. Nobody's pointing them to you. And what he did and what we do is kind of play the game and say, look, these things are out there. Go and find them and look for yourself. Educating yourself is the game. The, the universe is a, is a classroom. We should be learning. They've figured out systematically how to inject schooling to stop us from learning who we are, what we can do, what our potential might be, how we might change the world if actually we understood what was going on instead of being just subject to propaganda, stimulus, and reaction. Right. Here's one I want to throw out. Is there any one individual or group or document that kind of stands out above all the many that are mentioned in places like underground history of American education. Is there any particular individual, any particular document, any particular organization that, that like just, you know, really stands out to you as a, a particularly um, a nefarious one or, or a particularly important one to understanding this system and how it got to be uh, the way it is. I think we could we could probably trade off on these going back and forth for a while, but there's a there's a trio 
a lot of this had to do with studies into the genetic manipulation. I mean, that was the origin was like the genetic manipulation. This is also something the Rockefellers were involved in of the human race itself. But within a couple of decades, it had evolved, if I can use that word, into this project that was being run by what at the time was called the U.S. Office of Education. And it coordinated a lot of corporate interests, think tanks, and uh, academic institutions. And the three products of this era were some of the more clandestine insertions into the public school system happening again around the 1960s, basically putting methods of behaviorism into the schools. And if people want to do their own research on this, one was called Designing Education for the Future. Uh, and these are all done at universities. The Behavioral Science Teacher Education Product uh, Project, excuse me. And the third one was called Bloom's Taxonomy of Educational Objectives. So if people have ever heard of outcomes-based education, another great resource for this is Peg Luxick, Who Controls Our Children. Uh, you can find search YouTube for Who Controls Our Children. Also, this woman, Peg Luxick, working in Western Pennsylvania, uh, blowing the whistle on a lot of things that were happening in uh, the schools here in the 80s and the 90s and People didn't stand for, at least Peg Luxick and her crew didn't stand for it. The remediation of improper thoughts, that schools would not test for academic aptitude, but they would actually test for, and if necessary, remediate for attitudes, right? Would kids be leaving the schools with the right attitudes based on the instruction or the messaging they had received through the 15,000 hours they spent there. So, you know, you could think about, I, I, this might be a little bit too much of a broad brush, but if you divide the history of public school into three phases, I would say first, it's the, the importation of the system from Prussia uh, in the middle of the 1800s, then the reform movement spearheaded by people like John Dewey at the turn of the 20th century, and then the injection of behaviorism into all aspects of public school happening in the 1950s and the 1960s. So a useful heuristic, middle of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, middle of the 1900s. So they're, they're spaced out, you know, 50 years or so, roughly, uh, these three major interventions into what education is uh, in the United States. But this last one and those three documents, I would say to, to go through those um, and I, I can actually, for the show notes, I can't do it off the top of my head right now, but I could tell you where those are discussed uh, in the underground history, but they're worth reading about. And if I might add on to the ominous continuity, let's throw the idea of eugenics into the mix because it's definitely represented throughout his uh, historical recollection. The, the Foreign Affairs Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations was originally the Journal of Race Relations published by Thorsten Veblen. So what John's pointing out is there's a group of people thinking about how people work, how people take action, how people uh, react to stimulus and response. Some of these groups, like the Fabian Socialists, had put uh, their brain trust of, of their intelligentsia focused on how do we control human beings from the brain outward? Like, if you want to control their actions, let's figure out how to control their thoughts, right? And then there was the eugenics aspect, which is how do we use biology and uh, recognition of physical characteristics to control people. 
Well, all through what John is explaining about the, the, the cult of scientific dictatorship, you've got the Rockefellers rebranding eugenics because it got a bad name after their Hitler project went awry. So they call it molecular biology. Now, these are the same people that are also uh, you know, going into the school system, changing how things work. They're, they're working on the new eugenics, which they call molecular biology. The, the reference book for that would be Molecular Vision of Life, Rockefeller's Caltech and the New Biology by MIT professor Lily Kay. Um, bring, so that's, that's one of the aspects that I would mention from his work. It's very important to understand that there's a group of people who think they have the right to rule over you. How much right do they have? They have enough right to sterilize you or to kill you, soft kill you, hard kill you. There's all sorts of things that they've done with Rockefeller Foundation funded experiments. That also includes the CIA, MKUltra, a whole bunch of things that people think, oh, it's conspiracy theory. No, that's what people say who haven't actually read the documents and understand what's going on. So John was very adamant about pointing out that aspect. And then the other aspect, the, the part that caught me in like 2008 or 2009 was when I realized that he knew about Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope. And you read about, you know, this book that was censored from our society. How censored? They destroyed the plates to the book. Macmillan Publishing destroyed the plates of the book. And then they lied to Carol Quigley about destroying the plates of the book. So it's a very interesting story before you even read it, read into the book. And John knew the whole thing. He knew he's like, I had to get it at the library and, you know, get, liberate a copy because they put it out of print. So when I got to ask him about what's Carol Quigley pointing to, what does tragedy and hope mean to you in your, in the context of your research? Here's a guy who's telling us about what's wrong with the education system, but he also had a painstakingly accurate idea of who the, the non-elected rulers are how they operate, how they use both political parties to their advantage, how they work with the capitalists and the communists and the black market. Like they're covering all the bases and it was credibly written about. And yet you're not going to find that taught in any school. You're not going to find a class on it in a university. You'd have to find some obscure podcast out there to learn something about that topic. So that he was, he was really good at digging things up and then putting them on display for you. And that's that's a skill that I admire. He also had a way of talking about things that were pretty horrifying in <laughs> a pleasant and entertaining way. Quite a skill, right? He, yeah. he made a lot of this like dry, self-congratulatory, you know, internal memo through academia type writing. Like he could spin it in a way that was, and I don't mean spin in any negative connotation here, in a way that that made it enjoyable to read, right? And it, it kind of fits with the the bigger narrative that he lays out of what these people are doing. But to turn the thoughts of these people into occasional moments of entertainment is really, I think, represents his skills. It's an early form of trolling. He knew that tra <laughs> tragedy plus time equals comedy. Right, and, right. You know. Yeah, plus he was a he was a great storyteller, you know, both in his writings and in his speaking. He's he's just a very good storyteller, which is no doubt part of what made him such a great teacher is uh, this skill that again is one of these kind of meta skills, I guess, the the skill of storytelling that, you know, one of many meta skills that is normally not taught, at least not in any like systematic and intentional way in our school system, um, but is a very powerful skill. I mean, that's how you can get people to listen to what you're saying, including even people who might 
normally not be receptive to it if you can figure out how to how to tell it as a story that pulls people in and and kind of takes them on a journey and then kind of hits them with the punchline whether the punchline is actually funny or not it's another another one of these skills that we if we get it we either have to deliberately uh, learn it or it's just a luck of you know where and when we grew up uh, and and you know who raised us and that sort of thing well, you either learn it or you become subject to it, right? Because the the narrative, the storytelling format of rhetoric is something that's not taught to us really because it's very, very powerful. How powerful? Hollywood. How powerful? Official story of anything. The narrative is a, is a way of framing reality. And what John understood was if these frames contain a bunch of BS, you build a bigger frame around it and you show how it's BS and you can reframe that reality for people who are willing to take in the additional information. The narrative is what you referred to earlier with the hero's journey. That's the most famous format of the story narrative because it's carried through. It's the hero with a thousand faces, uh, Joseph Campbell's book, right? It's a marketing and sales template that works. It carries this information to you in su- such a way that you can format it and, and like understand it and realize it and live it in your mind. It's very powerful, very underused these days. Mm-hmm. Sorely needed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm always continuously trying to refine with my podcast is kind of that, that balance between information versus, you know, storytelling, entertainment, that kind of thing. Um, because you can have all the best facts in the world, but if you don't figure out a way to put them together in a way that's compelling uh, and draws people in, they're, they're never going to get the information that, that you're trying to, you know, trying to get across to them. Well, the end result of your craft is that that shows through all that thoughtfulness shows through because it's not boring, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it takes a lot of work, and it's always a work in progress. You know, I'm sure, um, I'm sure you all can. Um, uh, yeah, simp- we empathize simp- and relate. Exactly. When you <laughs> yeah. when you look yeah. back on, especially some of your stuff from like a long time ago, and you look back and go, "Oh God, what the hell was I doing?" But learning. Yeah, I see. That's, that's how true. I keep humble. I, I know that I'm learning. I learn so much every day. So I couldn't have been that smart every like yesterday. Right. So I just try to keep it humble. You know, if you look at yourself 10 years ago, of course, yeah, you've learned 10 years since then. Of course, you should look a little, you know, rough around the edges on the production or something like that. That's the whole the idea of refining ourselves and becoming self-reliant so that we can make things that show other people what they can be. Hmm. Yeah. If and they de- so choose. And develop that independent livelihood. Yes. <laughs> the economic self-reliance of entrepreneurism and free enterprise in America is a beautiful thing. And I think more people should learn how that works so they won't be so subservient to people that tell them what to do. Actually, Rich, what you're talking about is called the menace of overproduction. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a branding campaign developed in the early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's an overproduction of podcasts these days. I think we need to consider some podcast eugenics at this point, maybe. <laughs> I'm not picking that ball up. Hundred percent, hundred percent intended ironically for any listeners who are like, "Oh no, he's gone over to the dark." There's side. only room. There's only room for one history podcast. Yeah, and I don't think it should be Dan Carlin. Let's draw straws. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's have a Highlander style duel. I guess that's a better there idea. There can be only one. There can, yeah. o- there can only be one. Yeah. Well, the schooling system obviously doesn't do much in the way of true education. 
So my question for the two of you is, what does education really mean? How is it differentiated from schooling? And, and what would it really look like if there was such a thing as true education happening on a, on a widespread basis in a, in a country like the United States? You know, what would it look like if, if schooling was replaced with true education? How widespread a basis? I'm trying, just trying to create a vision for myself here. To the point where, where, I don't know, a significant percentage of people, whatever the hell that is, were getting more education than schooling, like over the, over the course of growing up. Or simply just if a greater percentage of people than currently quietly seceded from it in, in whole or even in part, you know, as, as could be happening. And, you know, people have different takes on, on what exactly is going on. But, you know, there's a fair number of smart people out there right now um, saying things like the kind of conventional education system uh, and, and college and all these sorts of things as we know it are, are perhaps um, on their last legs. Sure. That, that things like uh, decentralized online methods of, of learning and that sort of thing and, and more um, aids to self self-teaching uh, and self-cultivation that it might not be like a giant re- top-down revolution where someone in charge goes, all right, starting tomorrow, public education is abolished, but more that there's just sort of like a gradual widespread, just sort of like shrugging and walking away from it sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, how, how different would it look uh, if, if more people were doing more genuine education? Sure. Well, I think we see plenty of that, right? I mean, we could we could see what that looks like just in the context of this discussion. If we go back to um, classrooms of the heart, like John is basically showing middle schoolers how to unschool, right? Like how to be self-directed, like he's taking them out of school to do it. And it reminds me a lot of the things that you see, a lot of the, the, the motions that those kids are, are going through and um, the, the activities that they're engaging in. It's what it's what unschooling looks like. It's what a lot of you know what I saw on my tour last year when I traveled across the country. But right now, yeah, it's only being done by a couple million people. If more people did it, gosh, you know, I'm I hate to be cynical and and maybe Rich could could pick this up. Uh, but I think we'd see most of the stabilizing structures, at least in the short term, most of the stabilizing structures in society would fall apart because they depend on that schooled mindset. And I'm not saying that's any kind of justification for maintaining it, but this has become such a kind of self-fulfilling, self-perpetuating thing. It's almost hard to go back and this is very, very cynical and I'm sorry, but to (laughs) Rich was talking about the eugenic stuff and you even think about the deeper roots of some of that, like, you know, Darwin and Galton, the, the descent of man and this idea that, you know, even though they, in the book, they kind of, in the passing of the great race was the same thing where they're sort of doing it by region, like, yes, Scandinavians are better than Irish. And here's a color-coded map of where all the best white people and all the worst white people are. But the idea is that only a fraction of the human race is evolving, right? I mean, that's, that's basically what they're, they're pushing, even though they sort of j- divide it up in, in an ethnic way. And sometimes it's a challenge to look out at the world and to not see, even though I'm not divided, I want to be very clear, this is not any kind of, you know, dividing by ethnicity, but Conditions are such that a lot of people are not evolving, right? They are very reliant on these systems, very dependent on these systems. And if more and more people started to to break away from that, I'm not sure what would happen in the short term. I mean, I think this is kind of getting into the Rothbardian push a button thought experiment. I like 
that enough people are doing it. And I like to surround myself with people who are doing it. And when I'm asked by somebody who's less familiar with my work, like, well, what would you do? What would your solution be to the problem of school? You know, I use this type Titanic metaphor, right? If I was, if I was kind of standing by and watching that ship sink, I wouldn't start pontificating about like someday we're going to build ships that don't sink. And this is how we're going to, I'd be like, I have a boat, you know, like I think the thing we, we need, like the most immediate need here is a boat. Um, well, I found a boat and I have some room for some people in the boat. And like I said, this is cynical. I, I feel like this, there's a kind of powerlessness to this, but I don't know what I could do or, or even if I could create a vision of most people not doing this. I'm really at this point, I'm not sure that most people could escape this. That's and let me let me balance honest. that out. That that's okay. an honest answer. Excellent. I appreciate it. I agree. You're right. And there's two halves of the equation. So that's the cynical half. So for CJ, let me uh, let me balance this out. I like to balance equations, right? Isn't that what we learned to do in school? Balance equations. <laughs> if oh, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, I don't know. All right. <clears throat> this is not something I learned in school. Yes, uh, human beingness is kind of at a crisis right now because people have been stripped of the tools of self-reliant, of critical thinking, of creative problem solving, of cogent and clear communications. That is the that is the problem facing us. And I would like to observe that we also have the biggest opportunity in human history. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But first, this opportunity finds people who are overwhelmed. They can't be present. They're not like people are confused and therefore they just want to Netflix binge. They don't know what they should be doing. They don't know where they should be going. They don't know what to do. So they're very, very compliant, malleable, easily entertained, distracted, bread and circuses. This idea has been around for thousands of years. Technology has just gotten to a point where it can be just like seamless. So you don't have to notice that you know, you can't focus on things or you're worried about these things or you're overwhelmed, you're not going to have a chance because like here's the next uh, three seasons of House of Cards, right? So there's that's where this solution finds people. And that's why the solution is having trouble finding people. So all these people that are homeschooling, those are early adopters. Those are people who can turn off the TV and leverage their libraries and now they can leverage the internet. And that's all a great start. But the opportunity that we're sitting on right now is for people for the first time possibly in history to be able to have a true education based on a, a cornucopia of content that's out there. So educare, from which we get education, from the Latin, I believe it means to draw out, right? What are you drawing out? You're drawing out the truth of reality and you're drawing out your potential. What kind of potential do we have these days? Do we have to be cynical? Like cynical is a starting point, but it's not the end point. And I think a lot of people can relate, relate to that. They can relate to being frustrated, but that's not the end point. It's only the end point to you know how to take constructive action. So what kind of potential do we have today? We have this thing called the internet. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff censored on it and then not everything's on it. And you still have to go to the library or find some rare books. But for the mainstay of what you need to know, the internet is a huge resource that very few people are leveraging. And therefore, the infinite potential of the internet is, is there. It's there. But the limitation is people don't think that they also have an in, infinite potential to mirror what's available. They've been bred into this, they've been indoctrinated into this scarcity mentality, right? And that's something that also keeps people very easily controlled, keeps them complacent, keeps them from wanting to change their station in life, right? So 
the way that works, the way that hide that solution, it's in plain sight. It's out there. People, some people are using it. They're picking it up. They're being successful. They're surviving, thriving life. And other people aren't. What is keeping the solution from getting to these people? You got limited perspectives because they've been taught that they think they know things without actually asking questions. You've got the neglected aspects, which would be all this, the truth and facts outside of the official narratives that we're fed about anything from schooling to how the world works. And then you've got other pieces that are specifically occulted or hidden because if you presented this to people who are compliant slaves, you would find a revolt on your hands because they would understand their potential and how to enact their potential and how to pull the levers of power, right? So from my perspective, after looking at this problem for like 15 years, there's a lot to be known about how it happened and how we got here. And we need to learn that to figure out how we can go into the future with more freedom and less slavery and despotism, right? I think, and this might be naive, but if they had to take out these certain parts to break our system of freedom, that maybe if we put these parts back, people could learn to use freedom on their own, to learn the responsibilities of freedom, to have the ability to think and take actions and observe and learn and integrate that and improve their actions and try, try, try again, right? But these aren't easily being offered to people and it's very disparate on the internet to try to put it together yourself. So when I think about solutions, I think about creating a curriculum to help people do the, the meta learning, which is how to think about anything and learn, like how to learn about learning, how to learn anything. And the hyper learning, which is now that you know how to learn anything, what do you need to learn about on the internet, using YouTube, using Google, whatever, to fill out what you need to take effective action and actually drive economic self-reliance, prosperity, happiness, good social relationships, not making your life from stealing from other people or violating their volition or being a mercenary. Because those are the options out there for a lot of people, right? You can go work for a corporation and be under their rule, or you can go join the army or the Marines or whatever and be under their rule. But there's not a whole lot of teaching people how to survive and thrive through being autonomous, learning how to be self-reliant, which brings about real self-confidence, self-esteem. And that's what they want to hide from people. That's the whole thing they use in marketing and advertising to get you to buy their stuff in the first place. It's a broken system. And instead of trying to fix it, we should just make a better system that makes it obsolete. And it's not a system. It's, it's an unsystem. How about that? A method. <laughs> you know, I think one of the exciting things about this time, you know, while it's kind of this race in opposite directions in, in many ways, but, you know, I'll use Jordan Peterson as, as an example. Like, does Jordan Peterson have the perfect message? Of course not. But the signal he's putting out there and how many people are receiving it and acting on it, it shows that there is a pretty widespread hunger right now for overcoming, I think, the most difficult obstacle in doing a lot of what Rich is talking about. And, you know, that obstacle is internal. And I think we see so many things in, in the world today, so many actions, so many behaviors, and like the, the online world and mass media uh, is showing us so many, so much of this, more than any uh, of us can handle, I think, emotionally. You know, people acting on unhappiness, people settling for, you know, the illusion uh, of happiness or set, settling for what Rich has called, you know, this, this kind of counterfeit knowledge, the, the rest stop, pretending the rest stop is the destination. It's 
so the political climate of today. You know, somebody like Peterson, and there are, there are plenty of others, but Peterson has just gotten so much attention, and there has been such a concentrated effort by the establishment to discredit him and stop him that it, it's very, very curious, right? What the, what the perceived danger of people doing this kind of work is, or even having this kind of interest in doing this work is, or even connecting with a man who's encouraging people to self-investigate. Because I think you could put paradigm-shifting information right in front of people. And if these internal obstacles still exist, many of them would do nothing with it because of the, because of the, the reasons Rich laid out, like fear, a book being too big, right? Sometimes that's enough. I mean, that's obviously about something deeper, but that's a nice little shorthand to describe one's personal inertia. So when somebody comes along and they build this following around, do you want to do better? Do you want to solve these internal problems? I mean, I think that's one of the things that my uh, my experience doing School Sucks and all the great connections I've made with uh, you know, so many different people is like self-knowledge. If you're willing to climb that mountain, Yes, a lot of this other stuff opens up to you. And I think my cynicism is about how many people are willing to do that or how many people are able to do that. But I will also balance that myself, right, with some optimism that it seems to be, there seems to be a lot of interest in that right now. And I hope that continues over the next year, over the next five years, over the, over the next decade. Because I think if that opens up, then we could really start to see some progress. And I think for and that I, to I, open up, you just you just have to go past where people have that pain point because the pain point is, oh, that that book's too big to read. Or it could be at the gym. Oh, that weight's too heavy to lift. You don't want to be at the gym. You don't want to read the book. You you want the the feeling that comes after you exercise and you're healthy. You want the feeling that comes after you understand what goes on so that makes that that so that people just have to stop looking at it as oh that's not an enjoyable activity I'd rather watch House of Cards. Well, sixty years from now, which is going to give you more benefit? Actually, understanding how the world works or watching somebody else who understands tell you and entertain you about their mythical view of how whatever, right? So there's substance and there's arbitrary, and if you can tune out the noise, which is the arbitrary, and focus on the signal, which is the substance, that process is so rewarding and gives you such momentum that I think that it replaces the need for someone to tell you what to do or what to think all the time. Because I know from my end, having those abilities constantly drives my curiosity to innovate, to uh, solve problems, to overcome challenges, to be persistent. Because I know every time in a project or whatever, or any type of process that's meaningful, you're going to encounter obstacles. You're going to have doubts. And I know that's all just par for the course, but we're not taught that through the places that, that indoctrinate us for 15,000 hours. So I don't know, there's the, it seems like the real essence and meaning of life, if there's anything to do with education, it's completely left out of that system. And then they don't tell people that they actually need to go and find this stuff on their own because it's so profitable to control, and manipulate them like a herd. Right. Well, what really um, kind of sparked me to contact both of you um, for this discussion, um, aside from obviously uh, the, the death of John Taylor Gatto, was a a post in Facebook, and uh, I know I know Brett saw it because he he mentioned it um, in that uh, that episode that you've done already of your own show uh, talking about Ghetto. Um, I think it was it was Daniel McCarthy who who did the yes. post. You know, basically he tagged uh, a whole bunch of you know kind of libertarian content producers, including me and Brett. Um, in, in that post, you know, and basically made the point that like 
the the legacy of John Taylor Ghetto lives on in in all the different people who, at least to some degree, were uh, inspired and informed by him to to do their own version of what he did to um, do their best to educate themselves and then uh, do what they can to try and, and share that with others. And my response to that, uh, to that Facebook post, I don't know if you saw it. I put it in the comments. Um, I just wrote, I am Gatticus. I am Gatticus. I mm. am Gatticus. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's probably like the best, um, the best way that we can, sort of honor the the legacy of the man is by by each kind of doing what we can to in our own in our own unique individual way of course um sort of emulate the overall idea of of what it was he was trying to do so if either of you want to want to jump in on that yeah well the impact for me was the recognition that we've reached a third generation here Right. With that post, like John was in his 80s when he passed, you know, Rich is mid 40s. I'm about just over 40. Uh, I don't know how old you are, CJ. 37. 37. Okay, so we're, you know, all within 10 years of each other. But then here comes uh, Danny McCarthy in his early 20s. And now he's gotten this information from encounters with Rich's work, encounters with my work. And that's really exciting to me. We were talking about the power and the skill of storytelling. So John goes out on this intrinsically motivated journey to gather up all of this information. And then he says, okay, who's this information for? Who does this information help? Certainly, you know, I'm not, I can't bring this, I'm not going to be lecturing at Harvard about this. So who, who is this for? And then once you have that audience in mind, how do you build that bridge between all of this information that you have and that audience that you want to reach? And, you know, how do you make sure it's sturdy enough to get it across? And then I remember like, watching the ultimate history lesson and being really inspired and really impressed by what Rich had done. And I was actually staying with him and Lisa for the summer. And I was, I was thinking, well, what, how could I, how could I help? Right. What, what, what's something that, how could I put my own, whatever, my own motivation or talent or ability to work for this message? And I just, you know, started making videos, like taking snapshots from, uh, the underground history and putting them out on YouTube. And, you know, they got, some of them got lots of views and, and people discovered school sucks and discovered tragedy and hope and peace revolution podcast through those videos. They discovered John through those videos. You know, the same was true with the ultimate history lesson, like people who were listeners to tragedy or peace revolution podcast or following tragedy and hope who had never heard of Gatto before. Now there's this like intimate, super detailed discussion with him that's available so we were able to, again, go through that storytelling process. Okay, what do I have? Why is this important to me? Why did I go out and get this information? Who do I want to share it with? And what are the means, the best means to do that? Because I was like, you know, it's a shame that most people are never going to, certainly most people are never going to read the underground history of American education, but most people are never going to, unfortunately, uh, watch um, the ultimate history lesson either. So what, what, could I, what could I do to advertise it in four minutes? And that was actually why I started making those videos. So I liked, I really, really liked that Danny called out, you know, a, a handful of people and that I was one of them as, you know, somebody that he identified as being important to carrying this on. It meant a lot to me. And that's why I included that in the show. That, I felt um, the same way being tagged in that post too, by the way. If you want to summarize John's strategy, it's usually 
to to some effect, if this is what he signs books a, a lot of times. It will say some some variation of light up the shadows, or you know, be a spark in the darkness, right? These sort of ideas that the really interesting life things in life they're not being showcased and spotlighted by our society. That's his point. And so what what did we do? This guy's got to here's some wisdom. Let's shine a light on it. Brett makes some short videos. I make some long videos. We do a podcast, you know, several episodes analyzing it. You know, this is what we could do. But moreover, everything that you've seen, you know, like I, I was totally indoctrinated, college degree, very successful in the corporate world. And I was only prepared to be on my own because while I was paying for college, I had learned to run my own business. And that gave me sales and marketing skills. And then that's how I was successful in the corporate world. Well, when it comes down to the world is not the way you're taught it is. And for me, that meant take some time, figure out what's going on before you make any more moves or waste any more investments because you don't know what's going on. You got to learn what game is being played here. I was on an uncharted path. I didn't have very many people that encouraged me on that uncharted, unbroken path. They're like, get back on the highway. You can just get another job. And why are you over there reading books? Why are you trying to figure out what's going on? CNN tells me what's going on. And so when I encountered John's work, I was like, oh, there's another guy that went off the path and figured some stuff. So learning about his work gave me confidence. Internalizing what he taught then removed obstacles so that I could be successful in podcasting and learn, te- you know, teach myself to podcast, teach myself to make films, teach myself to do research and write books. So all those things weren't taught to me by school. They were taught to me by myself as a function of learning that, oh, I have a whole bunch more potential that's not being tapped into. I'm not getting the quality or quantity of information and data in a context that actually helps me make improved decisions and, and achieve consistent results. So let's improve my data set, which is what I did. Let's learn these things that are missing so that we're not so uh, unself-reliant and, and move forward. And so I think each of us embodies the things that we learned from his work. They're totally applicable to what we do today on our respective uncharted, hardly beaten paths, you know, through the wilderness. And we're just saying, look, it's even bigger than what we're saying. Like you have to get out here and see it for yourself. And I think that by all three of us showcasing um, wisdom in a variety of ways, it enables people to do that voluntarily, not in a compulsory way. And they don't have to raise their hand to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I really just want to say, um, giant thank you to both of you for, uh, joining me today to, to discuss, you know, the, the impact and, and the man, you know, John Taylor Gatto. Um, so, I, I appreciate both of you taking the time. I know you're both very busy, as I typically am as well. Um, this independent media stuff is not um, – it's, it's, it takes a lot of time, right? But, um, but anyway, thanks very much. And uh, either of you, uh, Rich, Brett, anything you want to say in closing, anything you want to plug, any final thoughts, um, I turn the floor over. If, if I had to, to put a punctuation on this conversation, I would say um, the most popular thing that I like to pass around to get people interested that John said, he said it in Weapons of Mass Instruction in 2008. He said, if you don't learn how to write your own script in life, somebody else is going to write that script for you. And so if you want to live a life that actually resembles or he, it, it steps, crawls, runs toward your dreams, 
you're going to have to do that on your own. Society is not obligated and they don't plan or budget to actually help you achieve happiness, achieve your dreams, have a healthy It's not on their radar. So you really have to take it upon yourself to strengthen your mind, strengthen your body for this journey. It's worthwhile. It is so much more worthwhile than what they have handed to us for free or made us take uh, you know, by force, however you want to see it. It's either a good offer for free or you were made to take it by force. So learning how to write your own script in life is an essential key idea that it exists. It can be done. You can do it. You have the capability. If you taught yourself how to learn, how to speak, how to read back at an early age, you, it's not a problem. But we've been trained into thinking that uh, we, our legs are broken and we can't run. You know, that's a, that's a semblance of control. We can shirk it off with a couple key ideas. And if you would like more signal and less noise, that's what I do at tragedyandhope.com. Final thought to support that idea. Something that John said in many places, you know, the first impression young people get of an organized society is school, and it is certainly a lasting impression. You know, through that impression, through or through that association, that this is what an organized society, that if I do what I'm supposed to do, I can fit into, I'm invited to be a part of it. We learned that it's, it seems kind of dull and stupid, and the primary relief he mentioned was lazy consumption. And that's not just about, you know, buying jeans and sneakers and Snickers bars and stuff. It's also about information, the lazy consumption of information. If you look at a lot of the warnings that he was giving well before the online world evolved into what it is today, it, this is almost prophetic. There is so much of this lazy consumption of information, basically substituting the act of consuming this stuff from CNN or whatever confirms their biases, whatever echo chamber makes them feel comfortable as actual rigor, real work, real intellectual uh, uh, challenge. So I, I hope there's a way that everybody in the audience can take that idea, right? That people make this association between the feelings they have in school and their relationship with learning for the, for the rest of their lives. And the result is this kind of lazy consumption. And to find a way to talk to other people, to point out, hey, don't call it lazy consumption, you know, come out with some kind of new name for it, for sure. But when you see it, be able to call it out to challenge other people on, you know, how they're, they're absorbing information and, you know, just basically passing it along without thinking. I think that's, that's a really important idea. I am Gatticus. <laughs> I am Gatticus. All right. Well, CJ, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate you organizing it and uh, getting Brett and I synced up for the schedule for today. Very absolutely. Much Can't ever overestimate or underestimate the role of being a host. There's always unexpected things that come up. And um, good on you for getting us together today. I really appreciate it. Indeed. Thank you both very much. Hey, my pleasure. I'm, I'm just glad I was able to get a hold of both of you and, and we could find a mutually uh, agreeable uh, time. It's a good thing I, I had a Monday off coming up soon. Is today a holiday that I don't know about? Uh, it's hundredth Armistice Day. It, oh wait, yeah, eleven, eleven, yep. eleven, twelve. Yep, yep. It's the Before observation, observation of Armistice Day. Yep. So banks and post office and all that junk is closed, and colleges. <laughs> there are some benefits to the day. Yes. Well, that could have been a show in itself, Armistice Day, because that caused some problems, even though it sounded like it was the end of problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did a, I had a bunch of little posts on social media about it yesterday. Um, give us one. Give us your favorite. 
Oh, pff, gee whiz. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What was the one that probably got the most most traction? I was proud of it because it was concise. Oh, here we go. Here's what it was. 100 years ago, they hit the pause button on the war to end all wars and got to work on the peace to end all peace. Nicely done. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I was I was proud of that one. I got to uh, I got to participate a little bit in Corbett's World War One documentary, and one of the quotes because I have all the books, all you know, the primary sources. To me, that was the forensic part. Gather the first edition copy of these books. So he's like, "Hey, I need this line from Colonel House's diary, Volume One, Chapter Thirteen, where he's writing with Lord Grey, saying." If one of our boats should be sank, a wave of indignation would sweep the country and surely we would found ourselves, you know, you know, basically before the Lusitania sinks, they're like, oh, well, if it should happen, here's what would happen over here. Yeah. And then Lord Grey is like, well, here's what happens over here. <laughs> and so I didn't get the tweet about that yet because it's a little more complicated than whatever, 248 characters. But yeah, that's a cool part of the history is actually being able to put your finger on. Here's the paragraph where this guy says in his memoirs to this other guy that they want to make a war. And here's how mm -hmm. they can make it happen. That would have been really eerie if they called it a new Pearl Harbor. 25 years <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, would, that would have been good from yeah. the people who brought you pearl harbor it's a new pearl harbor it's the pearl harbor pearl harbor prequel there we go <laughs> pretty much it yeah and then 9-11 was the reboot mm -hmm. yeah. well that's where yeah i mean that's the origin is the uh the project of the from of the phrase new pearl harbor oh, as yeah, far Pinac. as i know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh history it all connects how cool hmm you learn about one thing, you're going to learn about another. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks again, guys. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. And it's good to meet you, CJ. Big fan of your work. Oh, oh, oh likewise. Uh, you did a great talk last week at, yes. the, at the Harvard place. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, I got to talk about all kinds of like ghetto ish sort of stuff. Uh, in in my little twenty minute TED talk at Harvard, so yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, oh, one of my colleagues is speaking at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, I, a couple yeah. of years ago, nobody knew what a podcast was. <laughs> yep, yep. I got a, I got to bring up uh, you know extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations. I got to uh, mention you know the overall idea of um, compulsion and coercion making everything worse uh, in any relationship. I got to I got to quote Gatto. I mean, it was. I'm pretty proud of myself of what I was able to just walk into Harvard and just drop. You're it like a now. guy who knows about jury nullification actually getting on the jury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the audience who were there in person wasn't huge because at this conference there were like, you know, 10 talks going on at any given time. Right. So, um, but I gotta say the, the relatively small audience there in person, but they were into it. They were into it. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a small audience, that's really, really engaged and really, you know, hearing you and, and appreciating it than, than have a big audience of kind of apathetic people. Now, how far did you have to travel for that? How'd you get there? Uh, I live in Florida. Oh, right on. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A few hours on a plane. So you weren't driving. Well, if you're up no. here in the area again, man, I'd love to film an interview with you. Not just like a Skype thing, but sometimes like uh, that's how I met Brett back in the day. He filmed in my living room. I don't think we ever released that footage, but I still have it someplace. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you're, you're in Connecticut, right? Yeah, I'm in Connecticut. So if you're in like Boston or New York area, I'd be happy to, you know, put a camera in front of you, let you say smart things, help you get your word out there. Sure. Higher yeah. production value. 
Yeah, that'd be cool, especially if I'm ever up there and like not in a not in a giant hurry, you know? Because yeah, 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 whenever it's one of these little events, it's like it's a it's a whirlwind weekend kind of a thing. Of course, yeah, everything's booked wall to wall, and then the next thing you know, you're back home and you're like, oh, I wish I would have had time to see it while I was there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the well, well, I'll have more time. I might be able to do kind of some sort of miniature versions of what Brett did with the school sucks across America thing uh, in the future, because I am going to be no longer teaching any summer school. So mm. I'll have a long ass summer break of like three months off completely from work. Maybe so, we could talk about, we should doing... have a tour. We should have a yes. tour. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we're here. We know how to get forward. There's optimism. And I think that we may, we move the ball forward today toward the end zone. Of yeah, freedom. yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it'll be a good uh, it'll be a good episode on our our respective uh, uh, platforms. I agree. All right. Well, guess I'm gonna go make some lunch or something. Yeah, me too. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm gonna do right now. Yeah, lunch. That's a good idea. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm down with that. Cool. Uh, I, I second that motion and meeting adjourned. All right. Yeah. And end of the meeting of uh, Sons of Anarchy Gatticus chapter. <laughs> I look forward to the next meeting. All right. All right. Have a good day, guys. All right. right, right Take care. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank the Slow Norris, Raymond, Nathan, and Steve. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. And I have a thank you to... An excellent individual for getting me something off of my Amazon DHP wishlist. Thanks to Ken for getting me the book The State Against Blacks by Walter E. Williams. Very interested to read this book. I've been a fan of Williams's work for a long time. This is a, an older book of his that's a little bit harder to come by and not one that I've read before, but one I've heard of a few times. So very, very uh, interested to read this. Thanks very much, Ken. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org slash donate. 
And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.